Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, it's a major milestone for Let's Encrypt. F-Secure publishes their investigation into the Dukes, and we dig into the TarSnap email confirmation bypass. And it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 233 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 17th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. That's a nice red shirt you have on today. I like that. Yes. (laughs) Is that from a battle? uh, No, this is an uh, an old one from college, actually. Um, In our our Cisco class, uh, we had two racks of routers, and so the class basically got split into two teams, which, because of the popularity of red versus blue at the time... uh, we're red team, red and blue, and blue team. team. Yeah, sure. And, and I was, <laughs> uh, I was the leader of red team. Oh. Uh, and then you know, Kenny was Lopez, the mechanic, and uh, my friend uh, Tom was Griff, and uh, Luke was Donut, and so on. And then we, you know, we named the other team Church, and nice, and so on. And all the characters were represented. Um, well, uh, even though both Alan and I are a little battle worried today because uh, yeah. we are fighting a cold, but. That doesn't stop the news. So the TechSnap program continues on, and uh, this first story is one that you know our audience has been following for a while, the whole Let's Encrypt initiative, and there's actually got a pretty big milestone, doesn't it, Alan? What's going on? Yeah, uh, so they're about starting to issue their first certificates, although they don't actually work yet, Uh but it's a big step. Yeah. So uh, Let's Encrypt is a movement to issue uh, free and automatically generated HTTPS certificates, uh, and the Big goal there is to get everybody over to using HTTPS. So no more, oh, I'm not going to do HTTPS because I don't want to pay for a certificate because we'll give you one for free. Or whatever. Yeah, it's like we'll just give you one for free with none of the paperwork or nonsense. Um, although they have systems in place to, to make sure that you actually control the domain you're getting the certificate for and so on uh, and a couple other requirements. But... Uh, the idea is that everybody will have uh, SSL certificates and right. an easy way to get them and renew them. And, every, you know, every little thing, even if it's only temporary, can be just get an SSL certificate. Yeah, I mean, uh, and ideally, then people have more faith that the servers they're communicating with well, are genuinely most, there. Most importantly, uh, we can get rid of all self-signed certificates. And right. that way, no uh, more you scary the warnings, errors. you know that, yeah, basically make the scary errors more meaningful by making them happen less often. Yeah, right. That's a great point. Uh, a coalition of technology companies, including Mozilla, Cisco, Akamai, uh, Automatic, Identrust, uh, and the EFF and the University of Michigan, uh, came together to get Let's Encrypt off the ground. And the initiative is open source and overseen by a California nonprofit called the Internet Security Research Group. Uh, so Let's Encrypt has done all the setup and paperwork and been through all the audits and so on to actually become a trusted certificate authority. Okay. Uh, but obviously the big difference is that they will be giving them away for free. Now, uh, there's been another site they give them away for free, but they wasn't trusted by all browsers before, and they had this uh, interesting side effect of 
if you make them do a lot of extra work, they want money for that. So mm. revoking certificates costs money. Right, you mentioned that. And so it's almost nobody ever nobody did that usually, especially with a free one, until Heartbleed. And then there was a whole bunch of people that needed to revoke a And whole it kind bunch of became of an emergency, and so you kinda had mm. to pay at the worst time possible. And it's probably not something people even necessarily budgeted for and things like that. Right. But at the same time, you know, the the people running it, it's understandable that they needed ten dollars to to handle all the extra work of yep. revoking your certificate. Yeah, absolutely, so, yeah. Yep. Uh but anyway. Uh, so they say eventually webmasters will merely run a client to authenticate that they own the server. Uh, they'll also be able to uh, enable features like uh, HTTP strict transport security or HSTS, which basically will say, hey, you visited this site. Uh, I, I say we have SSL. So if you ever see the site without SSL, somebody's trying to trick you. Right? So something websites mm-hmm. can do to say, hey, we'll always have SSL, and if you ever get to our site and it's trying to not do SSL, mm-hmm. it's because somebody's doing something hinky to you. <laughs> uh, it'll also have the OCSP stapling so that you can uh, make sure you can verify the certificate and it hasn't been revoked and so on. And uh, they're asking people to make sure that visitors to the old HTTP version of your site are redirected to the new one. Uh, so for this to be trusted by uh, legacy software, obviously... You know, even if the Let's Encrypt Certificate Authority gets added to the thing in, in all your browsers, mm-hmm. it's not going to work on older things that don't have uh, this in their certificate store. Right. So they're going to get a cross signature from an existing CA uh, that will basically allow them to. Uh, Iden Trust is already in the certificate store that everybody has. Okay. And so uh, this will allow the Let's Encrypt certificates to be trusted even by older devices that. Don't have Let's Encrypt in their in their uh, trust store, and so that really does make this a pretty much complete, ready to go, well supported solution. Yeah, although I'm sure people will come up with a couple of ways to get certificates that they shouldn't. <laughs> and you know, obviously, I see you know spammers getting certificates from this, and and you know they're going to have to come up with policies for that. And I think they have a lot of that in place, but yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens in the first uh, couple of months of this being live. Uh, but currently, the cross signature from the uh, the trusted CA is not in place yet. So certificates issued by Let's Encrypt are only trusted by people who have manually installed the Let's Encrypt uh, certificate authority into their store. Okay. Although I'm assuming it will ship in Firefox and other browsers uh, fairly quickly. Yeah, and one of the other things that's really fascinating to me about this project is, uh, like, they have this here, and if you uh, if, if you uh, look in the show notes, we have a link to the threat post article talking about this. And in that threat post article. They have a screenshot here, and mm-hmm. this screenshot is like it's a it's a it's a deb file that you install or a shell script that you download, and that shell script with an Encurse's interface walks you through mm-hmm. without ever having to leave the console. Walks you through getting a cert, setting it up in Apache, and switching over your traffic to either HTTPS and HTTP or just HTTPS, all by executing essentially a command and then answering some questions. So it, it's not just a matter of making the SSL cert free. But it's also the fact that they're going to make it dead crazy simple to set up. Like you, ba- you don't have to be right. really an Apache administrator or really even go to the website to get a cert anymore. You just run this Python script or whatever it is on on the machine, and it's going to even be in like the repos for some of these distros. Right. I know that was uh, you know part of the um, the the goal of setting this <laughs> <Yeah>. up was <laughs> that you know if you're just a web developer building an application. You maybe not are an expert on configuring your web server and so on, so mm-hmm. they wanted to make it super easy so that everybody can do this and have these lower the barrier to uh, entry, right? Yeah, um, you know, 
I'm not sure I want some random program reconfiguring my web server, but it seems to have the option to uh, <laughs> not require me to use it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, Alan, there's other solutions too, right? I mean, you, you already right. have an, you, you already have an existing way of getting your SSL certs where you've already done all that, so probably wouldn't change anything for you. I wouldn't imagine, right? Well, I'd still like to have free certificates. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. All right, let me tell you about another thing that lowers the barrier to entry. That's Ting, our first sponsor here on the TechSnap program. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Techsnap.ting.com will give you a $50 discount off a first Ting device, or if you already have a Ting-compatible device, and they have a wide CDMA and GSM network, so you might, then they're going to give you $50 of service credit. So what is Ting and why? Ting is an MVNO that makes mobile a lot more approachable. They only charge for what you use, and it's a $6 flat rate a month than your usage on top of that. So it's $6 for a phone line, and then the usage. Minutes, messages, megabytes. Really straightforward. That's it. Plus any taxes that your state might apply. You can check them out by going to techsnap.ting.com. They have no contracts, no early termination fees, and they even have an early termination relief program if you're stuck in a duopoly contract. Even they're trying to bail out of it in some clunky way, those duopolies, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But there's nothing quite like Ting. And also, while you're at Ting, check out their blog post. They have a blog post up about the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus. Um, uh, put it the short way, yes, it'll work on the Ting network, but if you want to read more about it, go over to Ting's blog. And also something I've been playing with starting yesterday is the Netgear Zing. It's a, it's a MiFi device, and uh, it runs on the Ting network, and you can get it if you go to techsnap.ting.com for a discount, and then you're just paying for what you use data, $6 a month for the line. You can turn it on and off. The thing I like about this one is the, all the setup is done on the, uh, on the screen. You don't have to go into a web browser. You don't have to like go to the you know, 192.168.1.1 and enter in their crappy password. It's all done through the UI on, on the touch screen, and you right up from the beginning set up your Wi-Fi network name and password, and then you can see what its activated status is. You can see what its wireless signal is, how many devices are connected, and uh, how much data you've used during that session all right there on the screen. And it seems to have a better battery life than I was expecting as well. So I just picked that up for the road trip. The Netgear Zing. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Go get wireless service that really rocks. They got a lot of good devices, or you can bring your own, and you can support the show. They have a savings calculator I'd like you to try, too. Try them out. They also have no-hold customer service between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. East Coast time if you ever get stuck. Try them out. one eight five five ting ftw And then go to techsnap.ting.com to make your purchase. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Let's talk about... The Dukes. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Not the Dukes of Hazard. no, no. Uh, the Dukes of Russian cyber espionage, I guess, is what they are. Yeah. This is a pretty interesting story that goes back years and years, and it turns out multiple researchers have been chasing these guys, Alan. Yeah, so F-Secure has just published their investigation into this group, uh, which is a Russian APT team, and they say, we believe that the Dukes are a well-resourced, highly dedicated, and organized cyber espionage group that has been working for the Russian government since at least 2008 to collect intelligence in support of foreign and security policy-making decisions. Uh, so, you know, they have some malware that's very good at stealing documents, and they've been using it yeah. against... And their targets always seem to shift to where the Russians want the information. Now, this doesn't mean that they're necessarily working for the Russians, just that they're selling their haul to the Russians. Right? Yeah, they know what their customer wants, maybe. Maybe they're yeah, taking it's, orders, it's say, or maybe they... It, yeah, maybe they're taking orders, or maybe they just know what their customer wants and go and get it and sell it for money. Uh, so the same group is actually being tracked by FireEye, uh, but FireEye just calls them APT29 because they've just assigned each team a number instead of giving them a cool name. Uh, the <laughs> name actually originally came from Kaspersky, who found uh, the Dukes the first time. Which is, which is also a Russian-based company, right? Yes. Uh, now, 
their name uh, Duke for the malware actually came from the fact that it reminded them a little bit of Dooku, but the you know uh, F Secure Chad said there's oh. there's no actual connection to Dooku. It's oh. just you know similar concept. Hmm, okay, and so that's uh, you know Dooku just became Duke. Right? Yeah. Uh, there's a whole. If you read the PDF from F Secure, they have a whole page just on where the name came from. It's a monster PDF too. <laughs> yes. Uh, very graphical. Uh, yeah, yeah, than, you know, well, yeah. Regular research papers are, you know, academic style, and then we kind of usually get this hybrid. Yes. Um, this is the one of the most graphical I think we've really yeah, that, had. That one's a little more markety than I like the Kaspersky ones that you know they have some graphics and stuff, but they're not quite so flashy. Yeah. But you know, if you're trying to convince management, then their approach, obviously, the F secure approach is fits better depending on who's meant to read it. Also, if you want to position right. yourself as the uh, next FireEye, <laughs> FireEye 2.0. Yeah. Uh, but by um, interesting, what F-Secure ended up doing was combining their research that they've been doing recently uh, with that of the research like Kaspersky, FireEye, yeah. and ICDS, and going back through the, even just the uh, F-Secure's own historical research and their old samples of the malware, and now knowing all the things they know now, looking at that malware from 2008, they understand a lot more about it than they did when they looked at it in 2008. Uh, so, you know, it, it proves that there's uh, actually value in keeping old malware around. Mm. Because as you learn more things, it helps you unlock the, you know, put those little bits of information together. Right. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah, uh, that they basically found evidence that this group's been going for at least seven years. Uh, and uh, by connecting the dots, they actually managed to find two older pieces of malware that they can connect to these the same group, uh, whereas before they they didn't know it was related, mm-hmm. and you know that gives them more information to help understand what's actually going on here and what the objectives of that malware were. Right. Uh, so uh, the Duke group has been uh, quite an array of different malware that they've built. Plus, they you know iterate and modify each bit of malware as it gets detected to try to stay undetected. But they had uh, Mini Duke, Cosmic Duke, Onion Duke, Cozy Duke, Sea Duke, Cloud Duke, Mini Dion's, <laughs> uh, and Hammer Duke, uh, Hammer Duke, which uh, FireEye calls Hammer Toss. Hmm. Uh, some of the interesting things, though, are that the Dukes uh, rapidly react to research being published about their tool sets and operations. Uh, however, the group or their sponsors value the operations so highly that they will attempt to modify their tools to evade detection and regain stealth. They will not cease operations to do so. You know, they'll just keep going by steadily incrementing their tools until they're not detected. Wow. Rather than, you know, a group that was worried about getting caught would stop, uh, develop new tools once they're sure those wouldn't be detected, then start again. Does that suggest like guys, a tight timeline to you? Um, it suggests two different things. A, that yes, they, you know, the information that they're gaining they really want uh, and that they're not that worried about getting caught. Hmm. Which, you know, we can draw some conclusions about that in a minute. Uh, these campaigns utilize a smash and grab approach involved, uh, you know, fast but noisy break-in followed by the rapid collection and exfiltration of data as quickly as possible rather than, you know, the APT style, get in there quietly and slowly. Suck Live in there as long as possible. Yeah. You know, if the uh, compromised target is discovered to be of any value, the Dukes will quickly switch uh, tool sets used and move to their stealthier tactics focused on uh, you know, persistent compromise and long-term mm. intelligence gathering. Ah. So they just you know, go barge in and then figure out if they need to be stealthy so as not to waste their stealthy tools on targets that aren't, don't have anything of value in them. Seems like they run the risk, though, of uh, 
you know, alerting someone to their presence if they decide they want to stay. Right. But if, if, if they're being loud and noisy and, and, you know, that alerts you and you lock that down, you don't necessarily keep looking for the, the quiet approach, right? Right, because you think you found it. Yeah, because you, you, right, we stopped the noisy guy, so... Yeah, here they are. We found yeah. it. Yeah, actually, uh, that's yeah. a good point. In some of the most extreme cases, the Dukes have been known to engage in campaigns with unaltered versions of their tools only days after they've been brought to the public's attention by security companies and, you know, actively mentioned in the media. Uh, in doing so, the Dukes show unusual confidence in their ability to continue to se- uh, successfully compromise their targets even when their tools are publicly exposed. Or they know that people take forever to patch. <laughs> That's it. Uh, but you know, this suggests that they don't fear getting caught. And that may be because, you know, like that group we talked about, uh, you know, that big botnet a couple weeks ago from the Krebs article, that they've been promised protection by the Russian government. So, you know, even if the Americans figure out who you are, we're not going to extradite you and so you'll be safe. Uh, we're not going to let them get you. Yeah, plus, or, you know, so whether or not they're actually under the orders of the Russian government or just getting this information and selling it, to the government? There is also, uh, though, there is another advantage to using a publicly known tool, and that is it's much harder to track it back to a specific group. Because if a group gets known for using, you know, Pinch Duke and Cosmic Duke and Mini Duke, then they kind of, you know, that's their trademark. Whereas if it's just some generic malware that the rest of the industry knows about, you can't really say for sure if it was the Dukes that used it or not, right? So it's almost right. a way to be a little more anonymous. If you track it back to them, you're like, wow, it's so brazen they were using this publicly known tool. But at the same time, they might be why they're using it. Or, well, I think the reason that we're using the tool even after it came out is because they still needed the information and as that's, long as it still works. That's implied in the report. I, I agree. Right. I'm just saying possibly it's, maybe they used it because it well, was known. What would be really interesting is if, you know, uh, once a tool be started to get known, maybe even before there was a patch or, you know, a, a detection for it, yeah. but, you know, you were you were fairly certain that the researchers had got a copy of it. Starting to see it on the market quite a bit or is something. Just start, like, literally sell it on the market and get it out there all over the place to obvious, to provide yeah. somebody false positives yeah, that they exactly. can't consider which person was actually the originator of it. Right. That could uh, be an interesting way to approach it. Maybe we just gave out a really bad idea on the TechSnap program. <laughs> uh, the story of the Dukes, uh, as it's currently known, begins with uh, their very first malware that F-Secure called Pinch Duke. Uh, because this one pinches documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tool set consists of multiple loaders and an information-stealing Trojan. Importantly, the Pinch Duke Trojan uh, samples that they got always contain a notable text string, which we believe is used by the campaign to identify uh, the Duke group to distinguish between multiple attack campaigns that they are running in parallel. Isn't that interesting? And that, to me, also suggests that they are, they are under such a time-pressured deadline that they can sometimes lose track of the projects that they themselves are executing. So they have to leave a trademark behind so that way their own project members know that's their own guys. Because they're right. moving and so fast they can't keep it straight is what, it, that's, is what that sounds like possibly. to me. Possibly. But also, you know, back in the beginning when this type of thing was more about reputation than about, you know, doing it for the government or something, True. It, it might be worth it to, in the future, be able to point be like, that was actually me. Like, uh, I've seen stuff where, you know, uh, somebody posts some code, whether it's, you know, uh, something they weren't supposed to or, or so, for some reason, they're, they're writing this code and they don't want anybody to know who it was that wrote the code. Say, like, somebody like named Satoshi Nakamura. Or something like that. So, the, uh, the copyright and author statement or whatever will have, like, the SHA-256 hash in it. And, you know, nobody knows what that is, but someday in the future, they'll be able to say, here's the string that hashes to that. And that proves that I'm the guy that wrote it. It's a living resume almost. Well, in, in that case, it's more about, you know, 
when it's safe for me to admit that it was me that wrote it. Mm-hmm. Or sometime in the future, I need to prove that it was me that wrote it. Right. Yeah. Uh, even if I don't want to disclose my identity, I just need to be able to prove that that's actually mine mm-hmm. so that somebody else can't take credit for it or whatever. Uh, but there's an interesting timeline. Uh, starting in 2008, uh, the malware was used in Chechnya to, to watch the rebellion there. Uh, 2009 was the first time it was ever used against Western governments. Uh, in 2013, the group quickly shifted their target to the Ukraine. Uh, but interestingly, around the same time, they also started targeting uh, drug cartels in Russia. Uh, it was the first time that the group had ever worked against Russian-speaking people before. Hmm. And it turns out it was because uh, they were going after drug smugglers. Uh, in 20, or in the, on the 12th of February 2013, uh, FireEye published a blog post alerting readers to a combination of two zero-day vulnerabilities in Adobe Reader and that those were actively being exploited in the wild. Eight days after that, Kaspersky spotted the same exploit being used to spread an entirely different malware family uh, than the one mentioned in the original report. So, you know, when a zero day is still effective, you use it for everything it's worth. That's right. right. Well, you still can. Yep. Uh, on the 23rd of October 2014, uh, Leviathan Security Group published a blog post describing a malicious Tor exit node they had found. Uh, they noted that the node appeared to be uh, maliciously modified. Uh, any executable that went through it over HTTP that wasn't encrypted, the uh, hmm. executing the modified application obtained this way would result in the victim being infected with uh, malware. So uh, if you're looking at the PDF, there's a diagram. But basically, as you're downloading this file insecurely through Tor, they would take the original EXE and wrap it inside the virus. And then when you run it, it would extract and you would have the original thing you downloaded that you could in you, and then uh, the last bit would be the malware and it would get run and uh, do its thing. And then so, Alan, following if, that. If I if I if my count is right then it's not I said three at the intro, it's actually four. You have F Secure, you have Kaspersky, you have Leviathan, and you have FireEye that have all been tracking this group. And ICDS. Ah, five. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, That's incredible. Uh, this guy these guys have these guys have been leaving their mark because obviously they've gotten the attention of a lot of a lot of powerful different uh, uh, companies. Um, I'm showing that diagram, by the way, that you mentioned uh, in the video version of people are watching. Yep. But uh, yeah, it's on, uh, for those of you that want to go find it, it's like on page 13 of the PDF. If you're listening, you know, download the show notes. Because of course, like everything, Alan linked it up in the show notes for you guys. Yep. All right, sir, continue on. Uh, yep. Sorry, I lost my place. Anyway, um, so then a couple weeks later, on November 14th, F-Secure published a blog post uh, naming the malware Onion Duke, and uh, because it was through Tor, right? Uh, and associating it with the Mini Duke and Cosmic Duke and other Duke tool sets uh, that were known at the same time. Uh, based on the presented evidence and analysis, F-Secure believes with a high level of confidence that the Duke tool sets are the product of a single, large, well-resourced organization uh, that provides the Russian government with intelligence on foreign and security matters in exchange for support and protection. So yeah, again, it seems like these guys might have started up on themselves and just decided to sell their haul to the Russians rather than uh, you know, being like the Chinese ones, a military unit under your orders from the government. It's, I mean, uh, a tidier arrangement. Because the, yeah. the government can't probably officially have a, something like that. And it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, um, it's probably not too on, off of something that we probably do here in the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised if we have a version, if we don't contract with certain groups to do certain high-priority targets and terrorists or whatever you want to call them. 
Um, yeah, probably uh, goes on you know, quite a bit. Lots of defense contractors would love to have contracts from the government to hack things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of, yeah. And uh, there's uh, there are some companies, they don't do hacking, so, I think, but uh, companies like FireEye who do do a, a lot of very hand-in-hand close investigations yeah, or, and, and know, actually even intelligence hold... Intelligence. And, and FireEye even holds a special indemnity that uh, uh, other companies do not. So, mm-hmm. yeah. it's there, We do have other similar arrangements, but... This one sounds like it does sound pretty much like there. It's a private group well, that you know, it's if, just if got a great client. Any intelligence agency of any government anywhere, uh, they'll be perfectly happy to pay you money in exchange for information mm-hmm. if it's information they want. Mm-hmm. So if you go and hack and steal it, and then be like, "Well, I have these documents here. I'm not even going to mention how I got them, but uh, you will pay me money for them, right?" Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Token ring. And then at some point, it was like, you know, we will provide you protection so that you know other governments can't extradite you and, and lock you up or something. Token ring reminds us of Hacking Team, the recent Hacking Team story. That, uh, yep. But yeah, I have uh, both the Hammer Toss FireEye PDF and the F-Secure Dukes PDF linked in the show notes. Very nice. So let's talk about IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where you go to land on the page to support the TechSnap program and grab the guide to getting the ultimate server for open source technology. IX Systems has big rigs, little rigs, tiny rigs, huge monster rigs, and rigs that I am uber jelly of. Uh, this is such a cool story. Uh, IX Systems donates a one-use server to Pennsylvania High School for a web design, a redesign project that uh, has a special connection to the show, doesn't it, Alan? Yeah. Uh, so it turns out the, uh, the two people that did this for their uh, computer fair at their uh, school board or whatever... Um, wrote to IX Systems to, just to get a quote on what it would cost uh, to get the server as part of the, you know, as part of the science fair yeah, project. Yeah, because they probably heard about it. They, yeah, it's, just, it's Andrew yes. and Nathan, I believe, and they, are, uh, they, uh, listened, to, they listened to TechSnap, and mm-hmm. they heard about IX on the TechSnap program. They thought that would make a great piece of hardware for our web server. And they were right. They were right. Right. Well, <laughs> but as part of the project, they were just looking to get a quote. They weren't even necess- they weren't actually planning to buy a server. Oh, either. I love it's it. Just, as, you know, as part of the project, you have to say what it would have cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, IX is like, well, uh, you know, we like the, your whole project here. And, uh, you know, if you write us some more about it, uh, then we can probably make something happen. And so now, uh, yeah, and they presented it to the school board and they're going to build the school board's website. And IX sent them a nice server. Like, that web server doesn't need 32 gigs of RAM. Oh. IX is just like... Yeah, it's a standard server for us. <laughs> hmm. uh, they say here, as we prepared for the August school board meeting, I started looking for a quote for server hardware. Being a fan of open source software, the first company I asked was IX Systems. They come highly recommended from Jupiter Broadcasting as a company that supports and contributes to open source projects, mainly FreeBSD. And I think uh, this, yeah, look at this, this one new server with 32 gigabytes of RAM. Man, you know, the, the nice thing about going big on the RAM like that is a school district will use that machine for double Ever. the amount of time they should. And so yep. getting a lot of RAM in there up front means it's going to have a lot of lifetime. And because IX has such great hardware, you know it's just going to run until they're done with it. It's yeah, and, and basically it's an E3 process uh, Xeon, and so they just, as much RAM as it'll take. <laughs> That's so cool. That is so cool. Check it out, ixsystems.com slash techsnap, and you can go read the blog if you want to see the post uh, that I think Andrew wrote up. Yep. Uh, very and cool. uh, it's going to be part of a series, I think. So we're expecting more blog posts as the project goes forward. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ivacon says that machine will probably be there for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I agree. I think that's probably very true. <laughs> IX Systems has great hardware. Go check them out at ixsystems.com mm-hmm. slash snap. Now, our next story is about a company that we're very fond of and we talk about quite mm-hmm. a bit here on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, and that would be our friends over at Tarsnap, who I've been discussing an email confirmation bypass. Alan, am I correct? Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, Tarstep has a big bug bounty program. They've paid up more than 400 bounties, uh, sometimes as small as a dollar for fixing a typo in a comment. <laughs> uh, and actually, I, I was joking about it the other day uh, when I gave my talk at VBSDCon last weekend. Uh, somebody pointed out on Twitter a typo on one of my slides. And I was like, I remember watching one of Colin's talks at BSDCon when someone pointed out a typo on a slide, he paid them a dollar. <laughs> right there the, in the, yeah. the con. <laughs> yeah, right in the middle of his talk. You love it. Um, <clears throat> well, the talk was actually about how to run a bug bounty program, so it, it had a lot. It's of a good thing he brought some singles then. Well, being in Canada, that'd be a coin, but yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. What do you What do you call those? Looney. Yeah, I thought so. I love it. Okay, yes. continue. And we have answer. a toonie that's two. Yeah, of them. you guys are so adorable. <laughs> anyway. uh, so yeah, um, you know, Colin runs Tarsnap, which is this very secure remote backup system. And he uh, posted a blog entry about a, a flaw in the signup system that has recently been fixed. And, you know, being an open source type of person, he was very far, uh, interested to tell the story of how it works so hmm. that people might not make the same mistake themselves. Fascinating. Uh, so, you know, provide some interesting insight on how easy it is to make a small mistake and when building an application and how it can actually have real world per- repercussions. Uh, and specifically, because Tarstamp has a big uh, a bug bounty program, uh, he gets a lot of fake signups, right? It's people do like fuzz tests against the form and and do stuff to try to to break it to to get money, right? Yeah, jeez. So uh, for that and other reasons, it has an email verification. So basically, you sign up, and it doesn't create your account. It sends you an email, and only once you confirm it does it actually create an entry in the database. This way, uh, his database doesn't get full of these fake accounts. Clever. Makes sense. So then he says. So I wasn't concerned when I received an email last week telling me that someone had uh, tried to create an account as admin at tarsnap.com. Five minutes later, I was very concerned upon receiving an email telling me that the registration for admin at tarsnap.com had been confirmed and the account had been created. Oh, good thing he was watching. Well, he got sent the emails because admin at tarsnap.com is his email address. That that wouldn't wouldn't help me at all. I'm just saying, that wouldn't. Right, yes, you get too much. (laughs) Uh, So he's like, this should not have happened. So I immediately started running down a list of possibilities. Was it a forged email? No. The headers show that it was actually delivered from the CGI scripts on my web servers and went through my QMail and everything. Uh, you know, uh, was the copy of the, you know, when he looked in his own inbox, there was the email. Hmm. They should have uh, never gotten past the mail server. Being misdelivered somehow? Nope. The mail logs show the mail was actually generated locally and, and so it was all fine. Was one of the CGI scripts on the Tarsap server compromised? There was nothing in the logs to suggest that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there might have been an exploit or a bug or something, uh, or anything that suggests someone had been uh, probing for bugs. So if the CGI script was being exploited, it was done completely blind. Uh, nevertheless, I disabled the CGI script just in case. That would be my first thought. It was al- it's uh, always, you know, it's always CGI scripts. <laughs> not in this case. No, I know, I know, well, I know. Maybe kind of, actually. Oh, uh, oh. You know, Had someone managed to compromise the web server or mail server? You know, he goes on about how he checked for that, but it seemed unlikely. Uh, the mystery was solved a few minutes later when an email arrived from uh, Alamarin Venkataraman, uh, the person who had done it. You know, 
I, he hadn't compromised any servers or exploded any bugs in my C code. Rather, he had found a dumb mistake in Tarsnap's account creation process. You know, uh, for most people, to create a Tarsnap account, uh, only a few things are required. An email address, a password, and a checkbox confirming that you agree to Tarsnap's legal boilerplate. You submit those to the Tarsnap server. It generates a registration cookie. It sends a cookie... Uh, to you as part of uh, a URL in the confirmation email. Okay. And then you click through that link and re-enter your password in your account, and it gets created. So far, so good. But some people need a bit more than that. Because Tarsnap is a Canadian company, and as such is required to remit sales tax uh, for Canadian residents, uh, hmm. and because Tarsnap is required to issue an invoice to its Canadian residents, uh, invoices which have to show the customer's physical mailing address. Uh -huh. So if the registrant uh, identifies themselves as being a Canadian resident, then they uh, have to be taken to a, a second page uh, and, be, and type in their name and uh, email or, uh, ma physical mailing address. But it says, but what about that confirmation email? Well, I don't want someone who self-identifies uh, as a Canadian resident to create an account without providing the legally mandated information, so I couldn't send out the email until they had submitted the second page. On the other hand, they have provided their email address and password once already. I didn't want to ask them to type it in again. Yeah. And so when I finally got all the paperwork sorted and started accepting Canadian customers in July of 2012, I took the option, which was simple, obvious, and completely wrong. <laughs> I passed the registration cookie as a hidden variable in the second page form uh, to be echoed back to the server. So uh, when you submit the form, it either sends you the cookie or sends you to the Canadian page. And it would just basically, a hidden field on that page would submit it again as mm. part of the second form submit. <laughs> now, this, of course, is what uh, LMRN had found. To be clear, the registration cookie doesn't reveal any server internals. The only thing uh, it can be used for is to confirm an email address. But because it was being sent in the HTML response, anyone can confirm any email address uh -huh. simply by claiming to be a Canadian resident, viewing the page source, and copying the cookie. So it's a little Oops. nuanced, but that makes sense. It's like, yeah, uh, I've I've done the same thing before. <laughs> oh, and it's funny that it's funny that you have to specifically be a Canadian resident to trigger it. So it's so to, to cause this two-step. Well, it's because his program was all designed and nice, and then eventually figured out, oh, for Canadians, I have to do all this yeah. extra stuff. Yeah, the, like, there was actually for years he just refused to accept Canadian customers, even so though he's funny. Canadian. Yes, because he wasn't <laughs> worth the extra paperwork. <laughs> I mean, you know what's funny is people watch this show and they think I Canadian bash. I'm not Canadian bash. It's just I think that's I, I'm, I, I think yeah. Colin's a very funny guy. I think that's well, I, it's yeah, very simple. He lives in Canada and he, you know, he loved to get a bunch of local businesses and stuff using his stuff. But he's like, yeah, tax paperwork is a lot of pain. I'm just gonna not yeah, for a while. It's a simple and eventually approach. He did. Uh, so he says, "Oops." The fix uh, was pretty easy. Use two cookies, one for email confirmation and one for the Canadian address obtaining continuation. More importantly, I moved the cookie generation to where it belongs, within the routine which generates and sends the confirmation email, right? rather than being happening before and being submitted as part of it mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. The actual cookie generation only happens after you submit the Canadian uh, address obtaining form. Uh, within the routine which generates and sends the confirmation emails. And I've added a comment to remind myself that the cookie must never be exposed via any channel other than an email destined for the address to be confirmed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That last part ultimately is the most important lesson of this. Comments matter. I don't know what I was thinking three years ago when I reused the cookie. 
but unless my memory was much better than it, uh, than it is now, I almost certainly wasn't thinking about my original design from four years prior to that. That's so true. <laughs> while it was uh, hardly a fatal bug, and while I'll never know for certain, I doubt anyone exploited the email confirmation bypass. And the impact would not be severe even if someone did. Uh, but it's a reminder uh, of the importance of writing useful comments. <laughs> I often see solo developers excuse a lack of comments in their code on the basis that they understand their code and nobody else will be touching it. This misses an essential point. I am not the same person I was three years ago, nor do I understand everything I understood three years ago. Okay. People make mistakes. People edit code without fully understanding how or why it works. Yep, I've opened up stuff and been amazed that I was the person that made changes last. Like, I have no idea right. how the syntax works. I, I remember, you know, when we interviewed developers on BSD Now, so it, I think it was Paul Hennigamp was like, he was looking at some code and he was like, who wrote this crap? No, and he no. does SVM blame on it and it's like, oh, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> That's got a sting. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Colin's advice is to leave breadcrumbs behind even if you don't intend for anyone to follow you. Mm. Uh, when you try to retrace your steps, you might get lost without them. <laughs> yeah, leave a map even for yourself. Good lessons. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right, Alan, and, and uh, that is, uh, of course, in the show notes. Let me take a moment and tell you about DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server up in the cloud. And you can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start only $5 a month. And for $5 a month, you get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSD, one CPU, what's up, and a terabyte of transfer. Seriously, a terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. Did you hear me say it was $5 a month? Guess what? It's going to be free for two months if you use the promo code SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase that bad boy, and it gives you two months free. Now, this is nice because DigitalOcean is something I think you're going to want to try out. It'll probably blow your mind or open a little bit. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. Just go try setting up a rig. They have free BSD and a bunch of great Linuxes. And just deploy a system and try moving something over that's been an inconvenience to you. Maybe you want to roll your own Instapaper or Pocket Wallabag. Try that. Maybe you want to do OwnCloud for a little bit. Go deploy that. There's a lot of different options you could try with OwnCloud, too. You could do calendaring. You could move a lot of things off of your own data. Or maybe you want to mess around with SyncThing. Implement your own Dropbox system for $5 a month. Maybe you want to run a Minecraft server. You should just check it out. They have one-click application deployments, too. So you could mess around with some open-source projects you've only even read about or just never even tried, like Ghost, which is really a great blogging platform that you should use as Markdown on the back end, which I am really, really tempted to try out for, like, a travel blog or something. And it makes it so simple with DigitalOcean's interface to manage all of it. Their control panel is super intuitive, and you can replicate that control panel on a larger scale with DigitalOcean Straightforward API. And check out their community section as well. They have a bunch of really good resources over here. How to create a Puppet module to automate WordPress installation on Ubuntu 14.04. Not bad. Not mm-hmm. bad. That's great. How to troubleshoot common HTTP error codes. Now that's just handy. That's just handy for anybody. DigitalOcean has so many great resources. They hired uh, professional editors. They pay people for their contributions. You can find out more at DigitalOcean's community page. Just do me a favor and remember that promo code. I also I have a question, too. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if maybe they're uh, working on a Canadian data center or something. Oh, yeah? Wait. I got an email recently that they're going to have to start charging me Canadian sales tax. 
That only applies if they have some kind of business entity mm-hmm. in Canada. Perhaps the rumor starts here. We'll find out maybe soon. I'll be adding mm-hmm. Canada to that list. That would be great. Mm-hmm. You can check them out at DigitalOcean.com. Use that promo code SNAPOcean so we get credit and you get a $10 credit. So you can try out that $5 rig two months for free at DigitalOcean.com. I have uh, I have kind of like a whole bunch of ideas on how I could use. So you know, in the uh, I'm in the trailer I'm staying in while I'm on this road trip, <clears throat> I'm pretty much completely offline all the time. And so now I'm thinking how I could use a droplet to do a lot of things online for me, and then just pull it down when I have connection. So I might have some stories about that. Speaking mm-hmm. of stories, episode 107 of BSD Now is out in their midst. What's this one all about, Alan? Uh, infiltrating Linux conferences. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> you guys, you guys, with the Ubuntu kittens and now this, <laughs> this is great. That's well, this great. one's more about, you know, uh, how to properly engage Linux people and convince them to try BSD rather than, you know, don't go to the conference and tell them we're all stupid for using Linux because that doesn't work. Right, don't, don't start you with You have the- to... Make them come to the realization themselves that they're being stupid by using Linux. Okay, I see. I see. So you're saying don't open with a full-on attack of the GPL. That's probably not a good way right, to start exactly. the conversation. Or yeah. um, <laughs> look at the shiny. Yeah. Come play with the shiny. Uh, that does. And then as you, once you try it, you'll be like, oh, this is so much better. Yeah. I do got to say the shiny does tend to appeal. It got me there, Alan. All right, so you can find that episode over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We just mentioned it now because you you can get that HD version goodness. You can start it right now, and by the time the TechSnap program's done, you'll be probably finished with that download, so you don't have to go with another moment without Alan Jude in your face because he's in that show too. So you can go find that over at jupiterbroadcasting.com and subscribe to the RSS feeds. Also, since we are pre-recording some of these episodes for travel, don't forget to check our calendar at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar because we always would love to have you live, but the live times are a little wonky for a couple of weeks. So be sure, just check that calendar so you can get all that stuff. All that, so you know what our shenanigans is because we's crazy. Yep. All right, now with the uh, news all done, it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in right now from, oh, hold on. Mark. <laughs> Mark. Thanks, Alan. He says, guys, I think the coverage of the Mac keychain issue in episode 231 was a little deceiving. Now, I don't know if deceiving would be the word I would use, but here's, he fills in some gaps. He says, What's not said is the first is first the user must run the malware with administrative privileges, explicitly entering their admin username and password. The user must also have disabled the App Store code signing, which is enabled by default, although some users do to turn it off. And finally, the uh, user must enable GUI scripting for malware via a dialog. None of this is shown in the video. They show what happens afterwards. So that's well, they specifically mentioned those things, and we pointed them out. A, it only worked if you'd already rooted it, which is the admin privileges, and that the GUI scripting is often turned on by a lot of other applications like and anything Spanner. with accessibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, well, it would be just as deceiving to say that the exploit's not a big deal because you have to do this, this, and this when people regularly do those three things. One point, one thing he, one point of order, I'll, he, uh, he says OS X Mavericks now does control GUI scripting on a per-application level, so apps cannot adamantly GUI script without uh, user permission at each app level. The one switch for all that I was referring to was in a previous versions of OS X. Yeah, but a lot of people haven't upgraded because Mavericks is horrible. Yeah, it is balls, anyway. isn't it? Um, the other thing is that 
really what instead of per while per application scripting control might be useful, uh, it shouldn't be possible to script security dialogues. Yeah, which and, is what we discussed. Andrew, yeah, right. Andrew writes in free BSD network troubles is the subject, and he says, "Hey guys, thanks for answering my last question. Here's another one for you." So I spun up a five dollar month droplet in the uh, in New York uh, their region, their third data center in New York. I've installed OpenVN OpenVPN by following the guide that they have on DigitalOcean. The problem is the network performance. Not just through the VPN, but also straight from the droplet itself. I get about 500 kbps download when running a speed test from the server. When connected to the server via OpenVPN, clients are getting nearly identical speeds from speedtest.net. I contacted DO, and they said the host is fine if the speeds were about 70 megs a second on another droplet on the same host. This leaves me to believe that I screwed something up on accident. I'm really new to BSD, so I don't know where to even begin my troubleshooting. Routes, dmessage, logs, any advice for a BSD noob? I've attached a screenshot of me running the command on Dio that they had me run. So, Alan, do you have any kind of uh, so the, instinct on my this? My first question is, how is he speed testing on the raw host? So here, I'll, uh, I'm pulling up uh, a, uh, a uh, the screenshot that he sent in, and it looks like he is using bench.sh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that's actually doing. It looks, oh, I, it's doing a download from Cashfly. And, it's, and then it's benchmarking right, but, the transfer uh, rate the from download. This might be a tool that DigitalOcean wrote for him. I'm thinking. I don't think so. No? Like oh. the the, de- the speeds don't. You should never pipe anything to SH. Well, well, that that's separate. But, okay. <laughs> uh, don't make Alan angry. Don't pipe to SH. All right. Damn it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. Thinking. Well, let's see what this script actually does. Okay, so it's doing a speed test from a bunch of different locations using wget, which is not necessarily the best way to do it, but... He should be getting better than what he is seeing, though. R- well, he should have got a lot more results than he claimed to get either. Hmm. Like, looking at this script, it should hit a bunch of different places. Like, Cashfly is only the first place. Maybe it just depends on what he takes uh, a screenshot. Yeah, because it's supposed to do uh, Cashfly, Colo at Softlayer in Dallas, Linode in Tokyo, um, Rotterdam, the Netherlands from I3D, Linode in London, LeaseWeb in the UK, you know, Singapore, Seattle, San Jose, etc. Um, uh, I think the problem in this case is Cashfly because my speed is being pretty terrible to their mirror as well. <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, so, um, what's a good way to test this? Yeah, like I was only getting 1.9 megabytes per second from California. Like, could he spin up a droplet in a California region and do like IP perf? Like, what, what's the way yeah, to do this? Yeah, IPerf is, is IPerf, good for that. Yeah. Um, well, this benchmark tool isn't bad. It's just you would want to get the results from more than one place. And I'm guessing he... Because the downloads it's downloading are all 100 megs a, a piece, mm-hmm. if, if your speed's really low, it makes it, you're like, why is this taking so long? You know, like having 30 plus seconds between each uh, output is like, you know, slightly painful. Um, yeah, I'm wondering why you're seeing such terrible speeds. Because you normally shouldn't. Did you want to uh, mention is because so there's probably there probably really couldn't be anything he's configured wrong software wise other than if it's some weird 
I mean, like, I can't even imagine what he yeah. could configure to make it do that. I would say he should spin up another one and see what it, use a promo code and spin up another yep. one and, uh, and, uh, see what Just it does. Just remember to destroy it when you're done so you're not paying for it. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you have two places, you can use iPerf, uh, and that gives you much better results, and basically gives you continuous results. If you also, if you just wanted to just, but I think it, some of these speed tests are just crap. Yeah, like you, downloading a file over HTTP is not necessarily the best speed test, especially since you don't know what they're doing at the other end. But no, you know, these mirrors are supposed to be set up to advertise the speed of the places, so they're usually done quite well. But I'm getting poor performance uh, here myself, and. Hmm. You know, I, I know for a fact my download performance is actually really good. Okay, so the software ones are good. I'm getting like 40, 50 megabytes a second. There you go. But some of the other ones are, you know, LeaseWeb in the U, uh, in Netherlands, I was only getting 6 megs a second. So the other thing you could do if you just want to know the raw performance that that droplet is capable of is you could spin up another private droplet in that same data center and then you would be doing an inner data center transfer and mm-hmm. that would be your best case scenario, and that would be another way you could do iPerf. And private but transfers at this script, also are free. It looks like the, the two worst performing ones are the first two, which, uh, like, the, the Colo app one took more than two minutes. And so most people probably would have just given up. Whereas when I get the third result from SoftLayer, there I'm getting, you know, like, 25 megabytes a second. And if he goes to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash lastpicks, he will see speed test CLI, which is a app pick I did a while ago that is the speed test website, but on the command line. So that's another uh-huh. thing you could try. Uh, yeah. And um, did you want to just yeah. tell some him? of these, like uh, the the Japanese mirror? I'm getting better speed from than I did from Cashfly. Turns yeah. out Cashfly is just crap. Did you want to mention to him why he shouldn't be uh, piping things to SH from the web? Right, because uh, especially oh, it was HTTP. I oh, know. Where did the image go? I lost the image. <laughs> Uh, I can, I can, oh yeah, of course I'm not sending right. it to you. No, no, it's okay, I have it here. Uh, yeah, that was not downloaded over HTTPS, so anybody could intercept your connection and have the command that you're running be, you know, rm minus rf slash star or whatever. Yeah, that's really dangerous to just to take output from the web and, and then run it. Yeah, you, <laughs> like you definitely, you know, you use curl to download it to a file, then you read the file, make sure it does what you think it does, and then run it manually. Yeah, now and if it's your file, maybe. Speed testing like this, you shouldn't run it as root either. Oh, is know? he doing that as root? Yeah, he's running as root. You can tell because the shell prompt is a yeah, hashtag, but yeah, also you can see it. at the beginning yeah, of the yeah. shell prompt it says yeah. root at. I see he also uh, sent his IP address, but we won't. I don't know if you're already showing that on the Who, screen. Who, me? No, of course not. No, I'm okay. not showing No, I would not do that. Why would I be showing that on yeah, the screen? Yeah, I get right? much better performance from the later tests in this script. Uh, but overall, not great performance, honestly. Curl uh, to shell install blaster says, uh, okay, there you go. Curl to shell. There you go. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of different, there are a lot of different, uh, lot of different uh, tutorials online that start with bringing something right from the web into your shell. So you're not the first person to make that mistake. Uh, all right, let's talk about Lewis. He's got a ZFS question. It's not a, fee- a proper feedback segment without a rockin' ZFS question. So, hey, Alan and Chris, I'm a big fan of JB and TechSnap, and recently I was listening to BSU Now episode 95, where your guest was discussing how ZFS saved his you-know-what. <laughs> I guess that's the point of using ZFS, smiley face. My question is regarding snapshots and a backup strategy. I have 10-plus VMs running and hosted on a Proxmox server. It's using Extended 4 on a server RAID. Uh, it's an M5016 RAID 1 device. And another server running ZFS, it's a free NAS, as its main storage. 
from the free NAND server, I created individual NFS exports uh, assigned my different VMs. So each VM mounts its NFS share to the stored data and backups. By data and backups, I do not mean the actual KVM images, but the actual data generated within the VMs. You know, like the MySQL databases or own cloud files or Coppermine gallery files, you know. However, Proxmox does use an NFS share on the FreeNAS server for VM backups and restores. Instead of using this strategy to backup data, would it be better to use ZFS snapshots instead of the FreeNAS server? My VMs are all configured uh, the same to use our snapshot differential backups to keep the network traffic to a minimum and reduce backup time. What other better way could I use FreeNAS to support my Proxmox server? And is its VMs from a storage point uh, a better way, or could I use FreeNAS to support my Prox server? From a storage point of view, iSCSI would that be a better way? Should I keep NFS? Do snapshots on the? Uh, should I do snapshots on the FreeNAS server or anything else like that? And then finally, I'd like to mention that the servers are all gigabit connected, and the FreeNAS server is on the slow side because of older hardware. It's two Xeons, a quad-core CPU, 48 gigabytes of ECC DDR2 RAM, eight NAS drives with two M1015 adapters, four drives per controller, and all eight drives are in a RAID Z3 Z pool. So final question, if one ten, uh, M1015 dies, do I lose the entire pool? I'd lose four drives simultaneously, so I guess I'd probably be toasted. Thanks, guys, and sorry for the length of this feedback. Yeah, that was a bit of a long yeah. break, But So I'm not entirely clear on how his setup is. Uh, snapshots don't replace a backup, but generally you want to make your backup from a snapshot because a snapshot won't change, whereas the other ones obviously will, right? Um, yeah, that's a good point. You know, if you're trying to back up the live system, it's changing while you're doing it, and mm -hmm. that leads to a bad backup. Whereas doing it from a snapshot, you I mean it's a your entire backup is all from the same second. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you can. So you kind of want everything. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So so use, snapshots are good, but you still use them need in conjunction system. with your backup. Don't use them to replace your backup. Is essentially yeah, your answer. Exactly. Yeah, that makes mm -hmm. sense to me too. Um, iSCSI can be better. Um, it really depends. You know, uh, if you're doing NFS, you're basically writing you know these VDI files. Whereas if you're doing iSCSI, you'll have a a physical a, a volume a virtual volume on ZFS. And so, depending on how you're going to end up using them, it can be different. And iSCSI can be harder to configure, although it can be sometimes more performant and sometimes not. Uh, so, it really depends. But uh, mm -hmm. Test and let yeah. us know. I've actually, with Proxmox specifically, pretty much always just stuck with NFS. And it's always yeah. worked uh, Even VMware mostly uses NFS. Uh, you can do iSCSI, but it's a more complicated setup. Yeah. Hey, you know, if you wanted more Alan Jude in your ear... Well, hold on. i got to answer a second question. Oh, okay. Oh, oh right. yeah, So right. about the, the controller dying. So if you lose four drives at once because the controller died, your pool will be faulted. And so if you just stop there and fix the controller, then you'll be able to import the pool. Uh, so you'll be fine. So basically, when you lose all four drives at once, the pool will stop working. Then... Uh, if you can get the drives back by replacing the dead controller, then your data will still be there. Very nice. Very nice. So, now what I was going to say is if you want more Alan Jr. ear, you should check out BSD Talk 256. Yes. So, this is the uh, the other BSD podcast, the original BSD podcast, uh, and this episode 256. Uh, and it was uh, an interview they did with me at VBSDCon uh, last weekend. There you go. Nice and sweet. And uh, you can find it at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And, of course, Alan linked it in the show notes. 
And uh, that's a, you know, that's a, that is, oh boy, that's one of my first podcasts, even BSU Talk. Like I listened to it a yep. really long time ago. It's a good show, and uh, I'm glad to see it's still going. That's cool that you made it on there. Uh, originally, uh, that was who I asked to to do BSD now with me, uh, but uh, didn't uh, work out because because he's. Uh, teaches and is on some school board advisory committees and stuff. There's no day of the week that he yeah. can dedicate to it. Time commitments, right? Yeah. Well, it was just mostly, even if he had the time, it wouldn't ever be the same day of the week. And sometimes it wouldn't be a day of the week. And yeah, it was just not going to work. And uh, luckily, when I asked Drew, she recommended Chris. And uh, that's worked out great. Somehow, even with uh, being, you know, the most productive developer I know and having five kids, he still has time. <laughs> Yeah, he is really magic. Uh, or yeah, something. I don't know how he does it. That's crazy. Five kids too. Uh, I want to mention uh, JupiterBroadcasting.com/rover. I'm going to be on the road starting. Uh, well, by the time you're watching this, and uh, you can follow where I'm at in real time at JupiterBroadcasting.com/rover, including any shows that I post from the road that are specific to the road trip. And I also am making a call for support because it is a, a, a ex- extended expense. And we're also investing in extra editing while I'm on the road trip. So we could really use your support. I'm hoping to even get up to 600 patrons. We're at 554 as we record at patreon.com slash today. The funds there we're using to pay for the support staff back here to do a little additional editing. And uh, maybe any uh, by the time I'm on the road, I'll probably have a few disasters that have come up as well. It turns out flying by the seat of your pants sometimes. Patreon.com slash today to support the whole network and to follow the journey, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover to see where the JB rover is at. Now with the TechSnap feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now the Roundup for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we still want to talk about them and give you some links to follow up on your own. And a lot of these links were populated by our distributed intelligence database over at techsnap.reddit.com. Something like that. And our first story is, well, it's the drama that continues to be the Ashley Madison hack. And this one is mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. The former CTO of Ashley Madison is now suing a security researcher we all know for liable. What's going on here? Uh, so, yeah, the former CTO of uh, Ashley Madison, so he hasn't worked there for like two years, uh, took umbrage with the uh, Krebs' write-up of uh, some of the emails. Specifically, uh, Krebs insinuated that uh, the CTO had hacked Nerve.com, one of the uh, competing sites, because uh, in the emails he was talking about security vulnerabilities he found. Mm-hmm. So the former CTO says that I didn't actually hack it, I just found the problems and, and pointed them out to my boss. Uh, you know, I didn't go in there and steal all their data. And, you know, Krebs kind of said that in the way I read the article that, you know, it wasn't clear whether they actually uh, stole the data or not. But right. in this case, this guy uh, seems to be worried about his reputation. It's like, well, I think he's got um, other things to worry about. It's like, you know, it's not, that I don't advertise the fact that I used to work for Ashley Madison on my resume. You, you could stop saying my name so much. Wow. <laughs> or something. But yeah. anyway. Um, the Dark Matters blog over at Norse also has some more coverage about it, uh, and they kind of make some interesting points uh, about, you know, Krebs' side of it. Uh, when the hunter becomes the hunted. That was a bit overblown, but specifically, man obtains information for a story. Man has reason to believe information is genuine and accurate. Man publishes the information, uh, or uses that information to create a publication. Man gets sued. <laughs> You know, which is uh, yeah, well, pretty much. 
you know, libel is a method of defamation expressed by print, writing, pictures, signs, effigies, or any communication embodied in physical form that is injurious to a person's reputation, exposes a person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or injures a person in his or her business or profession. Uh, which you can see how that actually might apply to, you know, Krebs saying that you hacked something, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on your, you know, it's more that kind of would show off your skill set rather than say you're a bad person, but. Yeah, they, um, Dark Matters also points out that Motherboard wrote up stories about the CTO as well. Yeah. So. Uh, well, I think those, some of those go back to like 2012. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yep. All right, Alan, you ready for the next story on the roundup? It's always a hot one when it comes right from the bug tracker database. Mm-hmm. VirtualBox has a security update. Oh, no. Well, the big thing here is that while VirtualBox has a security update and there's new versions, Oracle refuses to disclose what the bug is. Yeah, unspecified security issue, they say. Yeah. What, what the hell is that? Oracle's not going to tell anybody what the problem was. You don't need to know. You don't need yeah. to know. Oracle no longer provides information on specific security vulnerabilities in VirtualBox. They actually say that in here? Yes. Oh, yeah, you're right. Look at that. Oracle. And it apparently has something to do with uh, bridge networking via Wi-Fi. How can this be okay? What am I missing, Alan? It's kind of the issue. Is this, is is VirtualBox basically, I mean... Well, I, I'm I'm guessing this applies to more than just VirtualBox. Oracle's kind of been doing this to all of their software. You know, this kind of leads back to that whole Oracle blog post. We're just like, we're going to take our toys and go home. You guys can have updates, but you can't have any information. Wow. Hmm. All right, you ready for the next one? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Beehive can't boot Windows soon enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Although uh, I rarely virtualize Windows anymore, so I yeah. don't actually need Windows. So the, there's this uh, sinful knock, this malicious Cisco uh, backdoor that was found in 79 more devices, 25 which are in the U.S. So they thought uh, that, uh, I guess they thought it was a smaller infection, and now uh, Ars Technica is reporting that it's gone much wider. The discovery comes after a team of computer scientists provided the entire IB4 address space for infected devices. As Ars reported on Tuesday, the so-called sinful knock router implant is activated after receiving an unusual series of non-compliant network packets, followed by a hard-coded password. By sending only the out-of-sequence TCP packets, but not the password to every internet address, and then monitoring the response, the researchers were able to detect which ones were infected by the back door. Security firm FireEye surprised the security world on Tuesday when it first reported the active outbreak of sinful knock. The implant is precisely the same size as legitimate Cisco router image and is loaded each time the router is restarted. It supports up to 100 modules that attackers can tailor to specific targets. And FireEye found it on 14 servers in India, Mexico, the Philippines, and Ukraine. The finding was significant because it showed the attack that has, no, has been long theorized but was in fact being actively used. Yeah, and so uh, this was finding seventy more, 79 more devices. Now, first, when you hear about a Cisco router backdoor and they say 79 more devices, you're thinking 79 more models that are all affected, but this is actually just 79 individual routers. Sounds very specific, so, doesn't it? Yeah, the number of routers is not very high. Uh, but The same exact you know, size this, as the factory image. Yeah, uh, they do quite a few things to try to make this hide. And so I'm guessing the places that are infected with it are uh, pretty... Can you well imagine targeted? how good the developers had to be to make a, 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 a this uh, Well, you sinful... can always make it smaller and then pad it to be the right size, right? Oh, that's true. That's true. All right. Uh, but more importantly is because of what you have to do to get this, it seems like there's always the possibility that some other packet gets in the middle or something and, and maybe you yeah. 
get a false negative. Yeah. You know, this device says it's not vulnerable and it actually was, but one of the packets got lost or something or out of order. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. And Ack in the chat room reminds us uh, that the NSA has a division called Tailored Operations where they specifically tailor yes. malware. Uh, yes, AT tailored access operations. AT&T offers $250,000 reward to find who the heck is ripping out California's fiber optic connections. Yes, so we've talked uh, before about a, a bunch of these fiber cuts that seem to be happening and nobody's figured out what happened or who did it yet. And so AT&T is up the reward to a quarter million dollars. I just don't understand why anybody would ever want to cut fiber. What I a know. cruel thing to do. Come on, people. If, if I cut a fiber, I would be rerouting it to me. Yeah. Yeah, like I'd be cutting it and then pulling it to my... Yeah, don't, don't, don't be animals. Don't be animals. All right, so the Dutch police have arrested the alleged CoinVault ransomware authors. You remember CoinVault, right? Yeah, uh, so one of the many ransomwares. Basically and, uh, crypto locker, yeah. Yeah, it would be uh, interesting to see if they have enough proof and everything to actually uh, send these guys away and how what impact that has on... Uh, um, yeah. Uh, looks other like malware. It looks like fifteen hundred machines were uh, affected uh, by a coin vault. Well, and, is that fifteen hundred machines that were affected, or fifteen hundred people that paid the ransom? Well, victims. So I think it's people who actually paid. Right, because a bunch of people wouldn't have been identified as victims yeah. if they didn't yeah. bother. Yeah. All right. So there was a bug in iOS and OS ten that allows a writing of arbitrary files via AirDrop, which is Apple's yeah. sort of mesh. File share thing. Yeah, so if you have AirDrop turned on and I'm near you, I can just start overwriting random files on uh, your phone or um, laptop. Now they've, I guess, patched this basically, um, but I guess it's not fully patched, and it's not patching all versions of iOS either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, turn AirDrop off, except for when you're using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And don't, don't as we talked about the other week, you know, you could also end up with uh, dick pics. Yeah, just don't set it to allow all. That seems really straightforward. Just, just eh, yeah. But you might off. allow me, and then I would still screw with your phone. That's true. That's true. You probably would. That's no, just true. All right, I love this story. I'm glad you caught this one. I created a fake business, and then I bought it an amazing online reputation. This is uh, Cashmere Hill, who uh, I've interviewed before on Plan B. And she writes over at Fusion.net, and she's really sharp, and uh, I like her stuff a lot. So what grabbed your attention about this? A couple things. Uh, one was obviously that you know, she, when she approached some of these people that were selling, so as uh, we're selling reviews for $5 or whatever, as a reporter, they were like, no, 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 we, we, we actually review the products. You know, we, we get sent one, and, and, and we write up the review. Uh, but when she approached them under a different profile as you know, someone looking to do it, it was... Yeah, just give us money and we'll we'll vote all your shit up. <laughs> hmm. Cool. Let's uh, let's try it, Alan. We'll create we'll create the TechSnap business and we'll create ourselves an online security firm business reputation, and we'll get some big gigs. Cryptome has our next roundup story. Just cryptome.org right there, uh, and it looks like what is this, Alan? An email right here. Uh, JYA and Cryptome passphrases are secure. Plain text discovered, not related to Cryptome with alter. What is right. this, Alan? So uh, so Cryptome is like the original WikiLeaks. Yeah. Uh, where you, people sent them documents, and you would send them PGP encrypted, so that you know nobody would be able to tell it was you that sent the documents. Mm-hmm. Well, their PGP keys have been compromised. Uh, oh, and the problem with that, with the problem with PGP, is there's no forward secrecy or anything. So if I compromise Crypto's PGP keys, I can decrypt every message they've ever been sent if I have a copy of the message. So it you know depends how they compromise the keys, whether they also got access to the original messages or whatever. But it means they could decrypt anything that was encrypted with those keys. Ever. Jeez. Jeez. So it seems like we maybe need to come up with some kind of system for PGP 
but in the end, the whole point is your a, your PGP keys are not supposed to be able to be stolen, and they're supposed to be password protected, and with a strong enough password that people can't brute force it. But now, in this case, uh, I, I, this we would hope for more detail uh, in the end. But yeah, this yeah this seems. Uh, Okay, Alan, tell me about... Oh, they say uh, the, the Cryptome passphrases are secure, plain text, discovered, yes. not related to Cryptome, with alternate to... What? That, that's not even a whole sentence. That's, I don't what, know that's that. what I was trying to read it. I couldn't, it couldn't make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll keep watching, I guess. But they have uh, just shy of 100,000 files compiled since 1996 uh, with uh, all the secret documents they've got. Okay, tell me about this next roundup story. The Justice Department, in response to a Freedom of Information request uh, by the New York Times, has released three batches of letters that sent to lawmakers on congressional oversight committees between 2011 and 2013, including a wide variety of topics, but enforcement of civil rights laws, leak investigations, antitrust matters, spending on conferences, and criminal prosecutions. What grabs your attention about this story? So this is a, a, a bunch of things like the leak investigations and the civil rights stuff. Uh, talk a lot about... Snowden-esque things before Snowden was a thing. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you mean? Like, well, they're talking about leak investigations when nobody knows that Snowden has happened yet, or sometimes before it had actually happened. So it's just interesting to see what their views on some of this stuff was before Snowden, comparing it to now. Yeah. Interesting find, Alan. Mm-hmm. All right, Intel's got our next story in the roundup. Intel launches automotive, our automotive security board to tackle connected car security concerns. Yes, so they've created the Automotive Security Review Board, hmm. which will review the security of cars and the you know, ASRB. Them. So Intel so wants to position themselves in the market as an expert in, in car security, essentially. Yes. Well, they did buy McAfee, right? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Ooh, okay. All right. Next story in the roundup. Brown, uh, brown, broadband users need a minimum, a minimum of 10 megabits. Yeah, maybe, maybe 100 megabits. Uh, that's according to a report that assesses broadband in 30 countries, and the data finds the UK is eighth out of 30. Not bad for the UK. I wonder where America falls. Yeah. Well, uh, well, if if you believe Netflix, America can manage about two megabits, maybe three. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yes, there's also there's obviously the big difference between the rated speed of your connection and what you actually get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, I, I would agree that you need at least 10 megabits to feel like you actually have broadband, uh, or you know, it's for YouTube videos not to buffer and so on. Uh, if everybody actually had 10 megabits, my job as a video streaming company would be so much easier. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Right? Oh, we're trying to stream at two megabits, and a bunch of people can't watch it. It's like, yeah, here's a transcoder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Here's a lower bit, right? Hey, I like this one. This is just in your face. Did it? Did we lose context of a story or something? Maybe. What? Which one? That, that was supposed to be related to a different story. Oh, uh, maybe things got moved around just because of the uh, recording schedule. Don't know, Alan. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. Did you? Did we delete stuff from the roundup? I don't know. Do you want to stop? Stop the show. Stop the show. No, no, no. It's just full analysis. Swear, we had we had a story about a trip through Yahoo's. Oh, yes, I did see that one. Uh, I don't know. Check the next one. Oh, did you? You moved it to the other. Maybe, Alan. Episode? I don't. I do not know, I think, Alan. I think Do you somehow. want to do it right now, Alan? No, yeah, I'm going okay, to okay. stick it in here because it All has right, to go, go before this one to make any sense. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't even remember moving it, but that's fine. Yeah, okay. There we go. So, Yahoo story first. Uh, oh, now see, I got it. Okay, you take it while I go refresh my doc yes. now. Okay. So, 
Uh, researchers over at rcesecurity.com have a profile of a, a journey through Yahoo's bug bounty program. Bounty uh, bug program. Yeah, so they, uh, they found a flaw in the Yahoo Messenger software. Okay. Uh, having to do with the way it, it uh, processes the uh, emoticons or emojis or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and so basically they could swap out the XML file or uh, put an XML file in a certain location are you and kidding me? then it would cause the client to, to do stuff it wasn't Because of emoticons? To. Yeah. I love it. And they, they expli- uh, explain how they uh, would exploit it and so on. So they went through and uh, checked the bug bounty program. And this, specifically, the bug bounty program has a scope. It says, the scope of this program is limited to technical vulnerabilities on Yahoo-owned applications. For password and account access issues, please work with our customer care team. The domain and properties... Uh, below are in scope for the program. Anything at yahoo.com or flickr.com, all Yahoo and Flickr branded mobile apps, and all Yahoo and Flickr branded client-side applications. Uh, you can submit vulnerabilities to other Yahoo branded sites not listed above, and we will find another way to recognize your effort. Uh, specifically, they in if you read more of the details, it says, non-web applications are generally not in scope, the only exception being Yahoo Messenger toolbar and email clients. Uh, so those specifically are in scope. But when they submitted the vulnerability, they were told uh, the bug only affects a compromised host and generally lowers security. And yeah, So they said it's not that big of a deal, and they went back and forth on it. And eventually they're like, uh, once the report was triaged, the Messenger team uh, was assessing the issue, and they say the Messenger app is end of life, so resources are low, and uh, they're not going to give you a bug bounty on it. <laughs> and then suddenly the... Bug Bounty Terms page says that specifically the Yahoo thing is, or the Messenger client is no longer in scope. So it wasn't EOL until he submitted the report and so on. Uh, then they decided, ah, it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, there's, it's an old program, so we're not going to fix it. So, yeah. yeah yep. We, yep. we meant to remove it from the scope, but we just didn't. And then, following uh, that. The, the worst part was that, yes, he's like, fine, I'll just disclose it publicly. And they're right. like, well, bugs. Disclosed publicly without permission can result in your removal from our bug bounty program and you won't be able to participate in the future. So, but he wasn't going to get a reward anyways. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. for this one. Yeah. 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 I but, guess. You know, he could, you know, the next one could mm-hmm. actually get paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess the uh, that leads to this tweet. Dear everyone, bug bounties are privileged, not a right. If you take the money, you agree to play nice. That's why they're paying you. Mm-hmm. There you go. Says the Grook. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Alan. Now, I believe our next story in the roundup is something to just sort of unwind for the evening. Cards Against IT. Like a take on Cards Against Humanity. Well, I think it's actually an expansion set for one of the, uh, like, you still play probably with the original cards as well. Nice. But yeah, so they got a bunch of white cards with stuff like, you know, RM minus RF slash star and PEBCAC and rotating the backup tapes. A USB stick they found in the parking t- lot. <laughs> A faulty crossover cable. Crypto locker. Edward a Snowden. K- <laughs> a KVM with a broken M. Two-factor <laughs> off. A one-button mouse. I love the server is down. <laughs> and then they have one nine nine nine. Here's like a here's a black card. The the new the new IT director has a sick tattoo of blank. The last five hundred free AOL CDs. The last consultant was uh, fired over blank. <laughs> a flaky VPN connection. <laughs> Two-factor auth with blank and blank. Uh, <laughs> pinging one twenty-seven dot zero dot zero dot one and viewing web filter block logs. 
blank is now included for free with every OS update. Script kitties. <laughs> a help desk call to fix blank with blank. Uh, <laughs> to fix Clippy with an RJ45 crimping tool. I just got a new certification in blank. <laughs> all right, so I guess you'd have to print all these out and cut them up, but it seems like yeah. it might be worth it. Yeah. Maybe somebody will make a set you could just buy on Amazon on some nice cardstock or something. An Arduino running NetBSD. <laughs> a faulty crossover cable. Yeah. Or just a rainbow it. pack of 3.5-inch floppy disks. Hey, oh, that's a keeper right there. That's a keeper. If you have an excellent roundup submission, techsnap.reddit.com, or maybe a story or a question for our community, that's a great place to submit it. Your questions, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. We need them for a future episode, so please send them in. And track our live shows over jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, where you stream them over at jblive.tv. Okay, Mr. Jude, I think we're all done. Is there anything else we need to cover today? Nope. All right. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>